Blog Talk Radio. era, where nature no longer calls the shots, but homo sapiens control the destiny of the planet, and we've become no more than parasites who are killing the host, hence the name of the series, Suicide Earth. It seems the degradation is accelerating week to week now. Did you catch the news about a billion shellfish baking to death along the west coast of the USA? Most of the smartest and best-informed experts now believe in their heart of hearts that we've come too far, already done too much damage, that there's no saving the planet. Roman Kuznerik is on the cusp of being one of these, but he sees a glimmer here and there, some slim possibilities that we humans could yet get ourselves together and, with mutual foresight and long-range thinking, we could still eke by and create a world where the future is not as bleak. His book is called The Good Ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking. His prescription offers six ways we might still be able to turn around the current rape of the earth. And most of it has to do with future and as yet unborn people and how we think about them. Thanks for sharing some time, Roman. As we speak, I'm in the USA, and I take it you're in England? I am in Oxford, England, not Oxford, Mississippi, and looking forward to this conversation, seeing if we can get from bleak to a bit more of that glimmer of hope. Did I mischaracterize your feelings on the situation? No, actually. actually, I thought I, I was just thinking as you were doing that, at, that intro that it actually feels pretty close to where I am, and I think... You know, often we're, we're all on a journey with these things as we hear new stories about, you know, uh, crustaceans baking in the sun and wildfires and people dying of, of heat waves. You know, we keep having to ask ourselves that question about, is this inevitable, the pathway that we are heading? Are we heading towards a kind of suicide, a suicide earth, as you say, or is there another path? So I'm always... I guess, in a, in a dance with myself about how I feel about that. Yeah. Your home is in England, but you're an Australian, well known as a public philosopher. You've written a lot about empathy and its importance, but before all of this tragedy really began, 15 years ago, you wrote about tennis. Yes, in fact, I wrote a book about a very obscure form of tennis, not the normal tennis you see at the U.S. Open or Wimbledon, but it's forerunner a medieval sport called real tennis. In the U.S. it's called court tennis. So imagine a normal tennis court with walls around it and a net. Um, it's the kind of tennis that was played by Henry VIII. There's only eight courts in the U.S. and about 25 in the U.K. So I wrote a book on this very obscure form of tennis. That's my beginning of long-term thinking, since the, the rules in this particular game haven't changed for 400 years. Well, you say that right now we are caught between the opposing forces of short-term thinking versus long-term thinking, and that we have colonized the future. What does that mean, that we've colonized the future? Yeah, that idea of 
colonizing the future as a metaphor I kind of grappled with before I really hit on it and decided to write about it because obviously the language of decolonization and colonization is very much associated with the racial justice movement and you know I grew up in Australia um, which you know has a history of course of colonization of the indigenous population and it increasingly occurred to me that the way we think about the future our relationship with the future is a colonial one that we've colonized the future in the sense that we treat it like a distant colonial outpost kind of devoid of people where we can freely dump ecological degradation and technological risk as if there was nobody there so we're dumping carbon emissions on those future generations and all the sea level rises and other threats like threats from artificial intelligence and bioweapons and it's a bit like when Britain colonized Australia in the 18th and 19th centuries they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius or nobody's land they treated the continent as if there were no people there but of course there was the indigenous aboriginal population um, and I think now you know as long as that that legacy of terra nullius is still there but we also have something new which is I think of as tempest nullius we treat the future as nobody's time a similarly uninhabited territory that's ours uh, for the taking and you know the tragedy of course is that future generations aren't here to challenge this pillaging of their inheritance you know they can't block an Alabama bridge like a civil rights activist or or go an assault march to defy their colonial oppressors like Mahatma Gandhi they don't have political rights or representation they have very little influence in the marketplace and that's a great form of injustice and I think one other important aspect of it, of course, is that the, the wealthy countries of the global north are kind of doing more of this dumping on the future than the countries of the global south because of our extremely high carbon emissions and material use. So that, for me, that idea of colonizing the future is quite a powerful one. It raises a question, of course, which is how do we decolonize the future? How do we liberate those future generations from domination by the present? And hardly anyone has ever thought or talked about future generations. You do, you do point out that, that, that there are 200 U.N. resolutions that mention future generations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think people have been talking about future generations and just not doing very much about it. But there's some good reasons not to uh, consider future generations. I mean, it always reminds me of a great quote from Groucho Marx. You know, why should I care about future generations he said what have they ever done for me and though he was making a joke I think it's something that people feel in their own lives in the sense of look I've got enough problems in my own life maybe I've lost my job because of COVID maybe I've lost a loved one I've got stuff going on you know why should I care about all those future people but I guess as I see it you know never before in human history have we been at a moment like this where our actions have had such potential damaging impacts on the generation's to come and in a sense that all began you know with the first nuclear test on July 16th 1945 the Trinity test where we became capable as a species of destroying the future of annihilating it but now we've gone further with um, the climate crisis and biodiversity loss and ocean acidification the whole realm of uh, ecological impacts that we're having and you know it's quite hard to get one's head around this but if you think about how many people we are today okay we're 7.7 billion people 
uh, roughly. And over the last 50,000 years, an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died. Now, if you get really long-term and go forward over the next 50,000 years, assuming current birth rates level off and stabilize, nearly 7 trillion people will be born. You know, it's a crazy number, hard to fathom. But in the next two centuries alone, tens of billions of people will be born. And I guess there's a real question there, which is how will they remember us for what we did or didn't do when we had the chance? And, you know, someone who really inspired me when I was thinking about all these issues was the great immunologist Jonas Salk, you know, who developed the first polio vaccine back in the 50s. But in later life, he said the great question facing society today is, are we being good ancestors? In other words, how are we going to be remembered by those generations to come? And he thought if we're going to be remembered well and not end up in a suicide earth situation, then we would need to expand our time horizons. And instead of thinking on a scale of you know, seconds, minutes and hours, as we do as we look at our phones and, you know, uh, write things on Twitter, you know, we needed to think on a scale of decades, centuries and millennia. And in a way, that's the, the civilizational challenge we face. You say we need to profoundly rethink and redesign core aspects of society, and there's there's precious little time. Our our main enemy is short-termism. Uh, you you say long-term thinking is gaining traction, but it's still on the margins. It's we're in a conceptual emergency because because long-term thinking still remains abstract and formless. It's not not really a movement on its own. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think all of us, you know, have had times where you pick up a newspaper or scroll something online and you see a, a report about the short termism of politicians or businesses or lack of planning for the COVID pandemic or um, people in other fields in architecture saying, why don't we need more long term thinking? And it's easy enough to say, but at least for me, it raises the question of, well, OK, long term thinking. Yes, of course, we need long term thinking. But what on earth is that? You know, are there different kinds of long-term thinking? Is it always good for us? How do we get better at it? Is it wired into our brains or not? And these are all questions I think are, are really important to explore if we want to get serious about challenging short-termism. And I think the, the real difficulty um, is that the short-termism is so deeply embedded in our societies. Like, it's not just because we've got phones and look at them 110 times a day. I mean, there are deeper reasons. I mean, uh, if you think of our political systems, you know, in the U.S. and most of Europe, you know, modern democracy, it's only a couple of hundred years old, representative democracy, but it really ties us into short-term cycles, you know, with uh, congressional elections every couple of years and presidential elections every four years and uh, it's really hard for politicians to see beyond that. But even our whole time culture more deeply is inherited, at least in the Western world, is inherited from medieval clock time. You know, the first clocks invented in Europe used to chime, you know, maybe every hour or every 15 minutes. But by 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, most clocks had second hands. Um, and then the clock became the key machine of the Industrial Revolution, keeping those assembly lines going and... and keeping the, the Model T Fords moving along in 1913 when the first moving assembly line was made at the Ford uh, factory in Detroit, I think it is. Um, you know, time has been speeding up and now we've got algorithmic share trading, you know, at one four hundredth of a second. So we've got this long history of time speeding up to contend with. 
Um, and that raises really big problems of how we deconstruct it all. I, I really think that uh, I, I really enjoyed the, 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 when you said that the Facebook, or someone at least, said Facebook is Pavlog, Pavlov, and we're the dogs. The phones in our pockets are the new factory clocks. Yeah, and I think there's a kind of a continuity there, isn't there? And um, But we do react to our notifications on our phones in the way that Pavlov's dogs uh, responded as well. And, um, you know, we're, we're caught in some of those short-term dopamine cycles which are designed into technologies. But, of course, you know, even if you put your phone aside, there's still huge short-term drivers in society driving companies to belch out fossil fuels and not care about the impacts of that i mean for example um so yeah we've got to we've got to put the phones away but do more than that one of the things that that uh i found in your book i hadn't uh, heard before and i think it's extremely apropos so let's talk about the rivals in our own heads between marshmallow brains and acorn brains. Yeah, it's a really fascinating subject that, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist and I don't pretend to be, but though I spend a lot of time with them. And in fact, when I was writing a previous book of mine called Empathy, I got very interested in the brain and how, um, you know, something that's very familiar, I think, now, how we're, it's very clear that we're not just um, motivated or we're not just wired for individualism and egoism but we're also wired for cooperation and um, sociability and empathy and things like that so we're wired for both me and we but I suddenly started thinking well is there evidence that we're also wired for both short-term and long-term thinking because you stop and think about it for a moment actually human beings aren't bad at long-term thinking you know we're, we're constantly in a struggle I think in our brains between the drivers of the short and the long term you know do we party today i will save for our pensions for tomorrow do we upgrade to the latest iphone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity and what i discovered is that we've really got these two different parts of our brains um which are about time and one of them i call the marshmallow brain and that's the bit about neural neural wiring which is all about instant gratification and immediate rewards that's the kind of brain functioning which gets us clicking that buy now button on our phones and it's named after the famous marshmallow test a psychology test from the 1960s where a marshmallow was put in front of kids and if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes they were rewarded with a second marshmallow and it turned out the majority of kids couldn't resist and snatch the snack and it started telling a story about human nature that we're basically driven by the short term now there are a lot of critiques of the marshmallow test like kids from poorer backgrounds snatch the snack faster or they don't trust the testers so they they take the marshmallow but actually what's really missing from the test marshmallow test story is that we've also got this other part of our brain which is wired for long-term thinking and planning and strategizing and it lives above our the front of our heads above our eyes in a bit of a brain called the frontal lobe particularly a part called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex if you're interested in the neuroscience of it but that's a new part of the brain. It's only a couple of million years old. The marshmallow part is about 80 million years old. We share it with rats and many other mammals. But the acorn brain is the bit which enabled us to think and plan long term. So other animals do plan ahead a bit. So a chimpanzee might get a stick and strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke into a termite hole. But they'll never make a dozen of those tools and set them aside for next week. 
But that's exactly what human beings do. That's how we built the Great Wall of China and voyaged into space. That's how we write song lists for our own funerals and save for our kids' college education. So our brains are constantly kind of dancing across time. You know, uh, we have this ability to think for the long term. It's just we're not very good at switching on that acorn brain as I see it. Well, you you provide six ways to think long, and and uh, the first one is kind of existential, deep time humility. You call it. Uh, we need to we need to grasp that each of us. We're, 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 well, our civilization is is just an eye blink in cosmic time. Yeah, that's right. I think it's really hard to get our heads around this. I think if you're a geologist or a astrophysicist maybe you can think on the scale of millions and billions of years but i can't you know and when i look at those geological tables showing all the different um geological eras like the cretaceous and the jurassic you know my eyes just glaze over yeah i think it's really important to recognize that as you say human beings and our civilization is just an eye blink in the cosmic story we need to grasp deep time and that was a phrase actually invented by the great um, American essayist John McPhee, who incidentally wrote a very good book on tennis. <laughs> There's a connection there called Levels of the Game. Um, back in the 1970s, I think, about a, a tennis match between Arthur Ashe and, and Clark Grebner. But he also wrote a brilliant book uh, called Basin and Range, and where he explored the idea of deep time and our place in that great story of life on Earth. And as he pointed out, we almost we need metaphors. We need a new language to think about our place in time. So he he gave one metaphor. He said, you know, imagine the Earth as the distance from your nose to the tip of your outstretched hand. One stroke of a nail file on your middle finger erases human history. And when I remember reading that and found it breathtaking um, that we were just nothing, and yet. In just a couple of hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, we have wrought such destruction on the earth with our ecological uh, damage and our technological risks. Um, and that's why I call this, of the six ways to think long term, this first one I call it deep time humility, because we need to sort of have a humility about recognizing, you know, who are we to break the great chain of life, which has gone on for exactly. 3.8 billion years on earth, you know, and for who knows how long into the future. I don't know what you're thinking about this, Van. Are you someone who can think in deep time? Uh, I, I, I do. Uh, I, I have considered myself an existentialist for for much of my life. So uh, even as a boy, I was able to to go out into my backyard and lay down on on the ground and look up at the Milky Way. I was fortunate to be able to see the Milky Way from where I lived then. And realize that uh, that we were seeing that, that all of those stars that we were seeing. Uh, I, I was looking into the past because it took it takes so long for even their light just to get here. Yeah, that is such a beautiful example, isn't it? And and that idea that you know this that light could come from a star which no longer exists. It could have blown yeah. up millions of years ago. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of what I'm talking about. I think it's about, you know, as you're sort of lying there when you're young, a kid, you know, looking up, it's about a sense of wonder in a way, this particular aspect yes. of thinking long term and getting a bit of humility 
uh, of our, our place in time and space in a way, you know, to, to recognize that we're, we're just a, that eye blink and that great cosmic story. But I think it's the beginning of opening our minds to deep time. It actually just reminds me of, I recently turned 50 and I went with my kids. I've got twins who are now 12. And for my 50th birthday, we went on a bike ride to visit one of my favorite trees, which is in a churchyard uh, on the edge of the city of Oxford. And this tree is 850 years old and you can climb up inside it. And we had a picnic up in the branches and we were talking about deep time. We were talking about how this tree had been there when bubonic plague swept Europe in the 14th century or when the English Civil War happened in the 17th century and would be there long after we're gone. Um, but I think that's just the kind of conversations, in a way, we need to start having in society, alongside very practical ones about carbon taxes and emission cuts and things like that. But I think we also need this, as you say, a kind of more existential approach to it all. And in just a hundred years, we've 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 uh, we've destroyed billions of years of of natural evolution. It's it's I I I, I just have no words uh, uh, for it. Uh, another one of your uh, uh, six ways to think long is is what you call a legacy mindset, and I really appreciated the uh, the Apache philosophy. Uh, that you brought up, they say, we do not inherit the land from our ancestors. We borrow it, children. Right. And, you know, so many indigenous cultures, whether it's Native American and First Nation cultures in North America or uh, indigenous Australian cultures or in Maori cultures in Aotearoa, New Zealand, have some kind of concept of ecological stewardship um, some idea that you know we've inherited this earth, and there's a question of how we're going to pass it on to the next generations. Or, you know, in Lakota communities and other communities in North America, the idea of seventh generation decision making, you know, is all part of that making decisions based on the impact seven generations ahead. And I think the whole idea of thinking about our legacies makes us recognise that in order to understand the future, we also need to look at the past, um, in the sense that. We can stop and think, okay, what have we inherited? What are the legacies that we have benefited from on the one hand? And we've benefited from, you know, medical discoveries made by people like Jonas Salk or others or the cities we still live in. But we're also the inheritors of negative legacies too. I mean, legacies of you know, slavery and colonialism and racism, for instance, mm -hmm. that create deep inequities that we must now repair yeah. or legacies of economies that are structurally addicted to endless growth and fossil fuels that we now need to transform. And that raises the question, okay, well, what are we going to pass on? to that next generations, are we going to honor that kind of Apache saying? So I think about my kids, you know, who I said are 12. You know, they could be alive in the year 2100. You know, that future is not science fiction. It is an intimate family fact. And if I care about their lives in the future or their grandchildren, yeah. children, well, I need to care about all life because I can't just care about them because they are not alone in the world, right? They're surrounded by their... Right network of friends and family and community, but also the living world, the air they breathe, the water they drink. So I think there's something really important there in when we're thinking about our own legacies. You know, often people think about, oh, what am I going to leave my kids when I die? You know, house, family, pass on traditions. But actually there's something bigger to leave them, which is a planet that they can live on. <laughs> you know, because that future 
you know, I read a lot of sci-fi books, you know, set in the 22nd century, and they're, they're not crazily far off. That's just a couple of steps away from my own life in terms of my children and grandchildren. You know, that's what's so frightening about it all, really, that, that that future often seems so abstract, but it's very concrete to me. And, and now I can, I don't know, you know about you, but, you know, now I can imagine the loved ones in my life, the young people in my life, kids in my case, being older, I can kind of see them inhabiting that world. And I imagine my daughter on her 90th birthday, and I go and look out the window, and I ask myself, well, what kind of world is it out there? And I see a world on fire, you know? Mm. Um, and that's the challenge. You know, I don't want that world to be on fire. Yeah. A legacy is not something we leave, but something we grow, you, you said in your book. And you talked about the seventh generation uh, which which is your your next uh, of of the, your six ways to think long is intergenerational inter justice. Uh, uh, even Pope Francis talks about justice between generations. You say it's becoming a vibrant social movement. Uh, uh, it, uh, I hope you're right. Are you there? Oh my. Okay. Well, seems like we may have lost our overseas connection with Roman Kersnerik, which is very unfortunate because I was just getting ready to apologize for the fact that we weren't, there's no way in the time allotted to us here that we were going to be able to to cover all of this uh time rebels are uh maybe he'll be able to call back there i i believe we i believe we have him hang on here hi there van i'm sorry i disappeared off the call there that's okay we've got you back that's good i was just vamping okay, in the meantime nope. right well thank you for that and you were asking about pope francis um yeah who, of course, talks about intergenerational justice and intergenerational solidarity. And I think it's really extraordinary that, you know, the Catholic Church in this case is starting to use the language of long-term thinking. And this is a language, you know, as we've discussed already in a way which is found in um, many indigenous, you know, cultures like that idea of seventh-generation decision-making. And what I find really exciting in this area of thinking about intergenerational justice and kind of what we owe or our responsibilities to the generations of the future is how many organizations around the world are trying to take this kind of thinking and put it into practice so for example um, in japan there is a movement called future design which is directly by by the idea of seventh generation decision making and what they do is they invite local people to discuss and draw up plans for the towns and cities where they live, and they typically split into two groups. Half of them are told they're residents from the present day, and the other half are given these ceremonial robes to wear and to, told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative plans for their towns and cities. And this idea of putting on these gowns and doing a kind of a citizen's assembly uh, or a kind of citizen's jury is now spreading across Japan. This method is even used in big cities like Kyoto, in Japan's Ministry of Finance, companies like Fujitsu. So there's a lot of creative work done on trying to bring the voice of future generations 
into politics or in Wales, you know, not far from where I am in England, they have a future generations commissioner. It's a political position, a non-party position, but the future generation commissioner's job is to look at the impact of public policy up to 30 years in the future. Uh, one of the things I found interesting uh, that, that you do in your personal life is uh, as far as intergenerational justice, you recognize that, that your children are part of these future generations and and you have uh, you have your your twins who are now 12 years old as you said you have them instruct you and your wife on how to vote that is absolutely true actually during the we started doing it during the time of the last uk general election which was late 2019 actually and um, my uh, wife and i we decided to give our kids uh, who were then, I think, just turned 11, um, we decided to give them our votes in the election. So we all sat around the kitchen table and we debated the party manifestos and we taught them all about the electoral system and they then told us where to put the X on the ballot sheets. And in case you're wondering, they didn't exactly follow their parents' political opinions. One of them did and one of them didn't. Um, but it was part of a kind of recognition in a way that we, who are we as adults to vote on their future? You know, um, they're the ones who are going to be living with the consequences. And, you know, most electoral systems do not give a voice to people of the age of my kids. In fact, none do. Some of them will give votes to 16-year-olds. Um, but, you know, I, I think on some level, Lovan, it was also a kind of symbolic act because I don't actually believe that just lowering the voting age is the only solution that we need for our politics. Because even if you do that, if you're your elected representatives are still caught in all those same short-term cycles, you're probably not going to get very far. And I think in a way we need to do a deeper reinvention of democracy. That's why I love that Japanese example of future design, which involves local people. You can give a voice to young people and things like that. Or something else I think is really important, um, particularly in the U.S. context, is actually using the law, using the judicial system to try and fight for the rights of future generations and intergenerational justice. So, you know, in the U.S., actually, there's this great public interest law firm in Eugene, Oregon, called Our Children's Trust, and they have launched a major lawsuit against the federal government. They're suing the federal government on behalf of 21 young people from across the U.S. who are campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. And this is an amazing shift in the way we think about rights. They're trying to establish constitutional rights, not just for kids alive today, but for kids, people in the future. It's an amazing thing. Now, this is David versus Goliath stuff. You know, they'll probably lose their initial case. It's been, in fact, been going for five years, but they're ready for the next one. And they've also filed cases in many states as well. Um, and they're an inspiration for movements around the world. In fact, just a couple of days ago in Australia, uh, eight teenagers uh, won a major case against the Australian federal government, basically obliging the environment minister, saying the environment minister has a duty to um, consider harm and possible death that could come to young people as a result of carbon emissions from the, Australia's coal industry, which is a big deal in Australia, where coal is everything. You know? um, so there's really interesting stuff going on in the legal world. I mean, I'm, again, not a legal expert. I'm not an expert in anything, really, just a little bit in intellectual history, probably. But 
Um, I think I, I'm just very excited by all these changes in the legal sphere because often law is quite slow, but there's enough going on in many countries. If you kind of connect, connect it all together, it feels like a movement emerging, what I call in my book a movement of time rebels, you know, people who yes. are committed you know, to this sort of long-term thinking, intergenerational justice, people like Greta Thunberg, but many more people besides that. Well, yeah, and you, and you mentioned the, the uh, Finland has, uh, in 1993, uh, made a committee for the future. Uh, in 2001, Israel started a commission for future generations. Uh, you, you did mention, Sophie, how the time rebel, who is the future generals, uh, generations commissioner for Wales, uh, David Suzuki says politicians should be drawn out of a hat. Uh, you, you, you mentioned that representative democracy may have passed its uh, sell-by date. We need to be getting uh, more participatory democracy going on. And, and, and speaking of legal, uh, if, if corporations can have legal personhood, why not, why not Earth? Uh, uh, the missing international crime of our time, ecocide. I'll tell you, if we could, if yeah. we could, if, if we could get that into the ICC, uh, things would change. Yeah, I think there's this parallel to the movement of trying to give rights to future people and young people. Is this movement to try and give rights to the living world, as you say there, that the. the you know, we gave rights to corporations in the 19th century. So why not give rights to rivers and mountains in order to protect them? And that is yeah. exactly what's happening in, um, in New Zealand. A, a river, the Wanganui River, sacred to local Maori people, have been given the same rights as a person. Um, rivers in um, India have been given um, constitutional rights in Ecuador. And I believe, I can't give you details in this, but there are some cases in Florida of trying to give swampland um, rights to try and prevent them being built on by big housing companies, construction companies, um, and those are ongoing struggles. So I think there's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. And then the, the big the big prize is ecocide, making ecocide a crime under international law, like genocide. And you know I, I believe in it. I mean it's a challenge though because the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where one would hope to try ecocide cases, haven't even been very good at trying genocide cases yet. They've only put behind bars a handful of people, as I understand it. Um, but, you know, we still need to struggle on all these levels. And there's a really raise the fantastic... Yeah, raise the profile, get the conversation going. And, you know, of course, I'm not the only person doing this. Um, I had a wonderful conversation recently with the great um, U.S. sci-fi author Kim Stanley Robinson, um, who's written so many kind of prophetic books about the future. But his latest one is called The Ministry for the Future, and in that book, it, it tracks what humankind does over the next three decades and whether we can stick to the Paris Agreement and keep under 1.5 degrees of global heating. But he talks a lot about uh, law and the struggle for ecocide in that, which I found really fascinating. So a great book. I can recommend it as well as I can recommend my own, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, you, you, you say that your book is, is a book about hope, not about necessarily optimism but it is about hope uh and 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 it's pointed out that it it often it takes an acute crisis to activate long-term planning 
Uh, here's a quote. Generating a genuine sense of crisis and emergency may be the most effective antidote to our deadly sleepwalk into civilizational breakdown. Yes. I, I think as I've studied history over the last few decades, I mean, what I do see is the importance of crises for motivating change. I mean, if you look at the history of long-term thinking, which I guess is what I've spent the last few years exploring, I mean, you can pick up moments like, for example, in Britain in 1858, um, there was this event called the Great Stink, where up until that time, raw sewage was being dumped in the River Thames, and tens of thousands of people would be dying each year from cholera and diphtheria and other diseases. But in the long, hot summer of 1858, the smell was so bad during the Great Stink, as it was called, that even parliamentarians in the House of Parliament right on the River Thames there couldn't breathe. They had masks over their faces like they have now. And they passed the emergency legislation in that crisis to build the sewers uh, of London, in Victorian London. And it took about 20 years and 318 million bricks and 22 million, 22,000 workers. But those sewers are still in use today. Why? Because they were built twice as big as they needed to be for the population at the time. This was serious long-term thinking, or what in my book I call cathedral thinking, my fourth approach to, to long-termism. Yes. And I think it's a really good example of the way crises can kickstart us into change. Or if you think after the Second World War, out of the ashes of the war came extraordinary long-term institutions, the World Health Organization, the European Union, Britain's National Health Service. But the problem with crises is they can take us in multiple directions, right? So the, the, the Great Depression, you know, took some countries towards social democracy, like in Scandinavia, it took other countries towards fascism. So, you know, a crisis isn't necessarily a cure. And we can easily keep our heads in the sand too, right? Um, I remember when the bushfires were ripping across Australia, you know, like they've done, of course, in the U.S., and they nearly engulfed my father's house on the, uh, in the suburbs of Sydney. And many of my father's friends were saying, well, you know, these fires weren't as bad as the ones in 1947 or so on. They didn't want to go take the step to thinking that this has to do with the fact that we're in the Anthropocene and this is a climate change-connected um, event. They want to kind of explain it away. So even the worst crises can you know, don't necessarily get us to stick, get our heads out of the sand. I don't know. What's your thinking about the role of crises? I'm afraid you're right. And, and, uh, I was, I was going to address that at the close that, that it's, it's, it's too bad that, that, that we actually have to hope <laughs> for, uh, uh, a, a, a serious event to to get us all uh, collectively thinking together but it seems to be that's the only way that we're going to avoid uh, being like those frogs slowly boiling in the pot that's right someone uh, a brazilian recently told me the other day uh, a saying they've got in brazil something along the lines of you only learn to win swim when the water reaches your waist and i thought well god you know it's, by then it's probably too late you know, um, we need to learn to swim a little bit before that. So uh, you, you mentioned Limits to Growth, the, the, the book that was written in 1972 a couple of times. And uh, I was at the University of Iowa in 1972 and, and happened to uh, have that assigned in one of my classes. And uh, Oh, wow. Well, I've, you got to it a long time before I did. 
I, I I thought then I thought boy this is prescient. I mean it has always stayed in my mind. They they basically said we have until 2025 uh, between, uh, before uh, things fall completely apart and and uh, and uh, they were castigated at the time. But I'll tell you uh, they they've been right on. Absolutely, they have been right on. Um, you know it was co-authored by. Um, Donella Meadows and, and other people who all, it was a, published as a report of the Club of Rome, where I'm one of their, I'm currently yeah. a member of the Club of Rome. It's an organization that still exists. And the Club of Rome is about to put out a big update to that original limits to growth report. Um, and in fact, we're in a m- series of meetings at the moment, but they're doing the math, as they say at the moment, you know, looking at crunching the numbers um, and, and, and developing some new models, because of course the science is, has developed. But the, the, the core message is still there that we are massively overshooting safe planetary boundaries in terms of CO2 emissions, in terms of um, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, land use, um, all those things. And if we do not come back within safe limits, then we shift to into a situation which is sometimes been called a hothouse earth situation. You're going over tipping points um, where you'll get um, you know, the, the fast melting of Siberian permafrost and, um, and, 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 and glacial melt and all those kinds of things. And who knows where that will take us to? You know, and what we do did know you see is that... The, I'm sorry, did you see the land temperature in Siberia was... Uh, the land temperature was 118 degrees uh, a couple of weeks ago? Talk about permafrost. Yeah, these these numbers are just going to keep going up and up and up. And... You know, the danger is we just sort of get used to hearing them um, and don't recognize that these are catastrophic tipping points. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid we've I'm afraid we've we've passed uh, too many of them. But uh, uh, although it's hard to be optimistic, we can we can still hope. I, I, I did want to point out that uh, one of the things I liked about uh, about your, your book overall is that you are you're so eclectic. Uh, you, you mentioned past historical figures and all of that but but also you mentioned treebeard the ant from tolkien <laughs> you mentioned the hunger the hunger games isaac asimov and harry selden uh and several indian tribes you know the the, the iroquois lakota uh it's just it's so it's so uh i mean you you can you 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 dive deep into the past and yet you are very current as well well, it's one of those topics, isn't it, you know, the long-term thinking. If you think about it, I mean, it doesn't exist in its own academic discipline. So necessarily you've got to start flying across them and look at history and look at the, the brain science. And then, you know, why not look at science fiction as well, for example, and Asimov and Psychohistory and Harry Seldon and all those great uh, Foundation series books because they have helped tell a story about the future, helped connect us with the future. Um, so I think we need all these different routes to trying to put our civilization, you know, onto a different pathway. And, you know, the, in my book, I've, we've talked about four of these ways to think long term. And the fifth one is called holistic forecasting. It's all about the idea of trying to really think on very, very long time scales. You know, a lot of forecasting you find in business is only going ahead three years or five years, maybe 10 years. I mean, the great thing about the rise of climate science is that it's made us think on very long time scales because 
climate scientists are looking at sea level rises over 100 years, 200 years, even 500 years in some UN report. So it's stretching our imaginations in the future. But if we're really going to look at the future, we have to recognize something, which is that civilizations do not last forever. I mean, in my book, I quote a study showing that ancient civilizations like the Romans and the Sumerians, those ancient civilizations last on average for 336 years. In other words, all civilizations rise, they flower and they die. And that that raises a question for our one, our civilization. It will not last forever. And there are people out there like the psychologist Steven Pinker, who I just do not agree with, who kind of think we can just keep on growing and growing forever and technology will come along and solve all of our problems as well as economic growth will solve our problems. I just don't see it that way. I think we need to jump onto a different kind of pathway. But I'm probably more hopeful than you, Van, of of the possibility of doing that. Um, I see, you know, signs out there that we can. I mean, I, I think nothing is inevitable in history until it happens. But that doesn't mean I'm sort of glass half full optimistic. You know, this is about massive uh, social struggle and you'll need a lot of luck as well. Yeah, part of your holistic uh, uh, forecasting is uh, scenario planning. I found it kind of interesting that that, uh, because scenario planning is something, uh, when I was in the U.S. Army in Vietnam, I I had to write contingency plans. We called them contingency plans in the Army and contingency plans for uh, an Army airfield that uh, so I had to figure out okay if if we get attacked what do we do and who does what and if we get attacked from over there what do we do and and if we get attacked this way etc uh, so scenario planning uh, uh, is an important part of your uh, holistic forecasting uh, envisioning the future yeah it is and that's a really interesting example about you know you having used it in a very practical way on probably life and death situations and in a way we need to pick up some of that scenario planning thinking for the trajectories of our civilizations you know what are we going to do in these different situations and different possibilities and i think we need to seriously consider you know the possibilities of civilizational collapse and what one does there you know there's been some great books and writing about this like jared diamond's the environmental historian's book collapse you know look he looks at 18 different civilizations and what causes them to collapse and and you point out that alternative models need to be ready and waiting in case that happens yeah that's right and so that's one of the real questions that you know if you look back to the say the 2008 9 financial crisis well that financial crisis didn't yield many new economic models. In fact, we kind of went back to business as usual, bailed out the banks and so on. And in the climate crisis, here we are. Do we have the new economic models around to pick up and work with? And I think that's actually where I find a lot of hope. Um, And if you look around at the ecosystem of economic development, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. So, for example, the city of Amsterdam has adopted the model of the donut of social and planetary boundaries developed by the British economist Kate Raworth, which is one of the world's most sort of foremost alternative models of um, how to organize our economies. And for people who don't know it, the idea of the donut is a kind of a, a donut like the one, kind with a hole in the middle where the inner circle is labeled a social foundation. And the idea is trying to get people above that basic social foundation in terms of basic um, meeting their basic needs in terms of health care or education and employment. But the outer ring of the donut 
is the ecological ceiling. Some of the things we've talked about, planetary boundaries like carbon dioxide emissions or ocean acidification. So the, the goal, the new goal that the donor offers the world is to bring people above the social foundation with, without going over the planetary boundaries, the ecological ceiling. That's a goal for government. So instead of the goal of growth, 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 which I don't think we can continue with because we're using 1.6 planet Earths each year in terms of our ecological footprint, we need an alternative. But cities like Amsterdam are now using that donut model and other models like the circular economy model. And there are others out there too, the well-being economy, trying to wean us off our obsession with GDP growth. And then Amsterdam's picked up the donut, then Copenhagen's picked it up, uh, then Cali, the city in Colombia, has picked it up, uh, the country of Costa Rica, it's being used in cities in India. And I think, again, there's a bit of a time rebel movement element here that if you put those things together, we're seeing a new kind of an economic ecosystem emerging. But as I see it, the problem is, can it happen fast enough, right? It's emerging. Maybe it's one of the fastest economic transitions in history, the rise of you know, um, B corporations or benefit corporations and social enterprises and so on. But um, the challenge is huge because the window of, for making change is small or short, rather. Yeah, one of the things that you did for me uh, was help me with uh, – I'm one of those people who – have toyed with the idea of the benign dictator. <laughs> I look at, uh, you know, sometimes I look at Z over in China and I see the things that, that, that they are doing because they have no, no other choice because he just says this is what we're going to do. And I wonder whether or not a, a, a you know, I have wondered whether a benign dictator might be the only solution since we don't seem to be able to, to act as a collective and uh but but this intergenerational solidarity index uh that that you that you pointed out uh, that that did some did some uh, uh studies in that area uh pretty much uh, put the the benign dictator idea to bed yeah it's a really tricky one you know i used to be a political scientist and you know so i'm quite geeky when it comes to nerdy when it comes to data around politics and I really wanted to investigate this question of whether, you know, benign dictators might be the way to deal with this. Because I, too, maybe like you, have felt that thing that, oh, just look at all our, all our squabbling politicians. They can't take the long view. If only we're a bit more like China, as you say, or a bit more like Singapore, which might be short on civil and political liberties. But they're good at long term planning when it comes to education and healthcare and other things. So I looked at the data and what the data showed is that if you measure um, with a, this index of, of intergenerational solidarity, how good countries are at long-term public policy, um, you know, their environmental policy and, and health care and um, other social indicators. And you map that against how democratic they are. It turns out of the 25 highest scoring countries in terms of long-term public policy, the 25 highest scoring ones, 21 of them are democracies. And of the 25 lowest scoring countries, in other words, that are very short-term in their policy, the 25 lowest scoring ones, 21 of them are autocratic governments. So they're monarchies or dictatorships of some form. So China and Singapore are kind of exceptions to the rule. They're kind of outliers. And the message there really is don't cross your fingers and hope that a dictator is going to come along and sort out all your problems because chances are they won't. You know, they will pursue their own interests or they'll be very fragile or corrupt or something else. But it doesn't mean that democracies can rest easy because every democracy could score a lot better on this index. I mean, the U.S., out of the 122 countries we studied, 
um, the U.S. comes number 65 on the list in terms of its long-term public policy, and 65 is not very high. No, no, no. Well, we've talked about uh, we, we've been talking about your your six ways to think long. We've we've talked about deep time humility, uh, the legacy mindset, intergenerational justice, cathedral thinking, which uh, planning you know well beyond a hundred years, holistic forecasting, and uh, we've gotten to your last one, which is the transcendent goal. Yes, a transcendent goal is all about thinking about what goal should we have as a species. You know, the great astronomer Carl Sagan said, we need a a telos, he said, a telos using the ancient Greek word for a goal or objective. We need a telos as a species. What should we be aiming towards? And and we need this, what I call a transcendent goal to align all the other kinds of long-term thinking, because long-term thinking isn't always good for us. I mean, a former head of Goldman Sachs once said, I'm, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. Well, that's a kind of long-term thinking too, but it's very narrow, or like a North Korean dictator might want to survive or keep the family dynasty going for hundreds of years, passing on power and privilege from generation to generation. So we need a more overarching goal. But what is that goal going to be? And um, in the book, I, I look at different options out there. You know, what, what, are, what are the, you know, when people are talking in society about our goal as a species, what kind of things come up? Well, one of them is kind of Steven Pinker idea of, of continual progress, particularly economic or material progress. But we now know the evidence is that we cannot keep our economies growing without blowing ourselves over dangerous ecological limits. There's no evidence that that can be done. And I, I happen to live with an economist, you know, and she seems to be very clear on this, that the evidence for the possibility of green growth is very weak. You know, that we can't decouple growth from our material use and carbon emissions at anything like this, the pace and scale required to stay in a, a safe planetary uh, situation. Now, the other option, instead of constant GDP growth, is to follow Elon Musk and say, right, let's, let's go to Mars. Let's colonize other worlds. That should be the goal of humankind, the transcendent goal. That's the only way to save, stay safe in case we blow up our planet or it get hit by, gets hit by an asteroid. But, uh, you know, Musk has famously said, I'd, I'd like to die on Mars, but not an impact. Um, and that's part of the problem, of yeah. course, which is that it's pretty hard to get to Mars, you know, 30,000 miles away and so on. And, but the problem, I think, the big problem, I think, of trying to take that option is that um, not only is it difficult to do that, and we may not have time for it, uh, of peopling other planets and other worlds, but what about the collateral damage? The more we focus on that, the less we'll focus on looking after the one planet we absolutely know that sustains life and you know I think of it a bit like rock climbing or or mountain climbing that you don't go up a risky peak until you've got your base camp in order first well we haven't yet learned to live within the limits of base camp earth and that's our challenge and that for me gives me what the transcendent goal should be which is be to thrive on this one planet we know that sustains life and I really learned a lot about this from um, a great um, thinker called Janine Benyers uh, spelled B-N-Y-U-S. And if you haven't seen her TED talk, it's fantastic. It's called some biomimicry, she calls it. She says, we need to learn from nature, mimic nature. And she asks this amazing question. She says, well, how is it that other species have learned to survive and thrive for 10,000 generations or more, whether they're birds or beavers or bats? And she says, well, it's by taking care of the place that will take care of their offspring. The place. In other yes. words, 
you know, not fouling the nest, living within the boundaries of the ecosystem in which we're embedded. You're not going to be there in 10,000 generations' time. So what we do is we look after the nest, uh, which, of course, is the opposite of what humans have been doing over the last century. And I think there's a, there's a message there um, about, um, you know, living in tune with the rhythms of the earth and the longer time scales, you know, more of that kind of indigenous Native American culture, for instance, of ecological stewardship. I think that's where the, the lessons are, but that has to become part of our public policy. And that's why we need models like the donor economics model to get us there that have to be prioritized by governments. You, you, you say we should put our faith in time rebels. <laughs> Here's a quote. Time rebels are battling the short-termism of entrenched corporate behavior and financial speculation in transient governments wedded to quarterly growth targets and a throwaway consumer culture. Uh, time rebels. Yes, these time rebels, I think, are everywhere. They're partly in that political and legal realm we've spoken about leading those legal cases, but they're also uh, in the economic realm trying to challenge corporations to you know by storming shareholder meetings or or doing direct action on the streets by locking themselves onto the the uh you know the, the gates of um airline companies and big banks and stuff like that i mean i i don't think you really get transformative social change without disruptive social action on the streets and i think that's the lesson of social movements over the last couple of hundred years and so the rebellion has to take place in many ways you need kids like my kids being part of the Fridays for Future movement, you know, which until COVID was getting hundreds of thousands of young people out on the streets, but you also need activists in Congress. You need, you know, people all, all over the shop and people just setting up a different kinds of economic organizations, um, setting up like benefit corporations or what are sometimes called B Corps, where they inside their, their articles of association or, or their charters um, they're not all about maximizing growth, you know, maximizing profit. They're also about having social and ecological aims. And so we need more of that in our, the way our economies work. So, but I think also as individuals, we can ask ourselves, okay, what can I do to be a, a time rebel? Or what can I do to be a good ancestor? And it might be in your local church saying, right, let's have a 100-year plan here, you know, a sustainability plan. Let's put solar panels on the roofs, whatever it happens to be. You can ask yourself that question of how can I be a time rebel or how can I be a good ancestor and do something more than just look after my look after number one, as it were. Yeah. How, how do we create a sense of shared identity with the unborn generations of tomorrow's world, the future people who we can never meet, but who we must endeavor to embrace as kith or kin? That, that was a quote of yours. Yeah, and it's a challenge, of course, because if you want to change culture on its deepest level, you need to change what kids are taught in schools. You need to change uh, what's preached in sermons in, in religions. You know, you need to go at the level of deep cultural change. And the yeah. problem is that that's relatively slow, right? And I do think there's amazing shifts going on in that area, like we talked about the Pope. You know, um, the Catholic Church is the world's most powerful social movement. It's got, you know, probably over a billion people who are part of it. Um, so they all need to be mobilized at speed. So we're in the pot, 
and it's slowly but surely going to reach the boiling point. Yet, unless there's some huge and terrible event to bring us all together, we're just going to be as dumb as frogs and boil to death. Seems wrong to be praying for a, a devastating event, but that's the only thing that's going to save us at this point, isn't it? I think there's a truth in that, that, you know, isolated crises are not enough. It's not enough just to have wildfires in California. Actually, I think what the historical evidence shows is that those in power need to be affected by these crises. So it needs to really yeah. affect, you know, the, the, the financial system, political systems, and not just in one country, but in several countries, major players at the same time. You need to get China, the United States, European Union, Brazil, India, those kinds of big players all to you know, be hit by multiple crises and to say, okay, now is the time for collective action. It's got to feel like a war, right? You've, you've been in warfare situations. You know, it's, it, I guess it needs to feel like that. The problem is it doesn't feel like that. That's the problem with that, uh, you know, the frog boiling in the water, as you were saying earlier. Um, and, but we may well have those kinds of crises which kickstart us. I mean, I think I still go back to the Second World War. Amazing things happened in the Second World War in terms of uh, rationing of major resources, mobilization of people, new kinds of education, all sorts of stuff. The evacuation of two million children out of British cities into foster homes across the country. Amazing what we can do. We can do stuff, um, but we do have to feel the pinch very, very strongly, and particularly those in power must feel it, because if they don't, they will just build the walls, and protect themselves behind the sandbags. It's a great book, Roman. So easy to read, yet so full of real information and real possibilities, if we can just make them real. Let's continue to hope, even if we can't be optimistic. Good luck to you and to all of us. Thank you, Van, so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. I did, too. Thanks a lot. This is one of those books you'll be glad you read. You know where to find books. Find this one. Share it. Pass it around. It's an easy read for anyone. And if you're an academic and need such things, there's 40 pages of footnotes and a 10-page bib as well. The Good Ancestor by Roman Krasnarek. Yet another way we might yet work ourselves out of this horror we have allowed to happen because most of us can't see beyond tomorrow. So are you going to be remembered as a good ancestor or just one of the mindless parasites that destroyed the one thing keeping you alive? Suicide Earth. We're not just killing us. <laughs> 